Hello, my startup peoples and pals. Aloha. It's my profound pleasure to welcome you to the Startup Catalyst podcast, where we cover the founders, investors, and we share tactics and tips that will catalyze your startup's success. We do this primarily by interviewing investors and startups in Hawaii's own startup paradise, as well as Silicon Valley and startup hubs across the globe. For today's show, we've got a real awesome treat for you. As I interview adventureman, entrepreneur, angel investor, and, well, all-around badass Steve Homschild. We crack open some beers from Steve's own brewery, Lanikai Brewing Co. Uh, we chat about how Steve lived in a tent in the woods. You got to start in business and real estate and adventure guiding. Uh, we talk about lessons learned along the way and other rad stuff. Steve's got some great tips for entrepreneurs. He's even written a love letter to entrepreneurs that we talk about, uh, essentially an encouragement to him during the tough times of business and life. Uh, he's definitely a guy I admire. He is pursuing successful endeavors that provide him the lifestyle he wants. And I think this is a very important topic. You know, he's a self-professed lifestyle entrepreneur. He believes in those lifestyle type plays, which maybe in other startup circles can be a four-letter word. But he's hitting singles and doubles. He's adding value, life value, to any value he gets from a business to determine the comprehensive opportunity. And the scope of life is much greater for him than just a paycheck or an exit. So Brother Steve is a great interview, a guy I definitely admire, Steve the Homs Child. Uh, you got to listen to the whole interview and uh, that will make a little more sense. Uh, hint, he graduated from the Ohio State University and uh, you know, can't recommend this interview enough. I had a blast doing it with him. We even high five at the end. Uh, we shared a moment. But without delay, uh, check out my interview with Steve Homschild. Steve Homschild, I hope I say that right. Close enough. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. We're here with uh, Steve drinking, oh, what are we drinking? This the is, Moku? Yeah, this is the Moku uh, Double Imperial IPA made with picake flowers. Oh my gosh. Right. So it's got a we mix can, of We like, could spend the entire podcast talking about this. I can spend days upon days talking about it. 8.1% alcohol. That's, yeah, it was originally called the uh, 808 to honor our area code, but um, that one, oh, trademark really? issues weren't going to let that one work out. It was it like 8.08% alcohol? It was. Are you serious? Yeah, it was. Oh, it no was. Way. So we, we had it all right there, and then, you know, the, um, there's a lot of names in the beer world with the craft beer world exploding, so there's a lot of overlap, and sometimes you've got to be very careful about where you want to spend your trademark dollars and how far they're going to go. And So the 808 was the issue in that case? It was in that huh. case. Yep, yep. So the 808 was um, previously owned by other uh -huh. people. Yep, unbeknownst to us. But anyway, so yeah, you get those like uh, pineapple and mango flavors, and then the picake gives the floral nose. And but you know, just like anything else, you got to be careful. It's eight percent, so you got to be careful about driving afterwards. For yeah. Sure. So we got the 40 here. That, that was right? a 22 ounce. Oh, really? Yeah. This is my favorite way to drink beer with friends. Is you know, it's about 11 ounces, so slightly less than a pint. Um, so, you know, you can crack a couple with a friend it's and perfect. you can have multiple different varieties and, and um, not feel guilty about killing a whole one yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you are a brewmaster, so I, you know, you can write this off as a, uh, to everyone's a test, right? Yes. You're just you know, you're doing market assessment. Absolutely. Right? Uh, well, Steve, great to have you on, uh, on this Aloha Friday, actually. Yes. We are here, um, you know, kind of just wanted to start off our conversation Talking about, you know, you were studying evolution, ecology, organismal biology yeah. at the Ohio State University, yeah. the Buckeye. Yes. 
how did you end up in Hawaii doing a craft brewery and everything else you do? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, life makes a lot of sense when you look backwards, but it never makes any sense moving forward, right? So, um, you know, when I was born in Wisconsin, grew up in Chicago, and then eventually moved to Ohio just with my family, just like everybody else does. And, and um, so I went to Ohio State University. I had a lot of friends going there. It was a great university, um, one of the largest in the world. So there's a lot of variety of people, had a great football team. Um, it had all the kind of core things that I was looking for at that time <laughs> in my life, yeah. right? And uh, I really, just, just because I think a lot of the times you're trapped in like a dogma, you do whatever your parents or family does because it's familiar to you. And my dad was a doctor, my mom was a nurse, my sister's a vet. So we're all, you know, all brilliant science minds. So by default, I just kind of got into the science world. I was interested in going to medical school. Um, so I didn't know if I wanted to study. Most people that go to medical school have some sort of science background. And I didn't want to really want to commit to like a marine biology or a terrestrial. So I kind of tried to focus on both and got, you know, those degrees, evolution, ecology, organismal biology. And, right. um, you know, I was a, I was a five-year college student because it was a lot of fun. That's for sure. And then pretty much towards the end, I started to realize that I didn't really think that the medical life was for me. Not, not because I didn't love the job, but just, be, just because I saw medicine changing, doctors spending more time doing paperwork and fighting with insurance companies. And so just, this was just kind of a broad observation you had, or was there a specific event or story or like something from your, was your father you said was in medicine? Father was a doctor, uh, mom was a nurse. It really wasn't a specific like trigger event. It was just kind of looking at a change and where that industry was going and and at that same time, you know, I really enjoyed my time on the weekends and I really enjoyed an outdoor lifestyle and all those things. And, and they just weren't really, I didn't see how they were going to line up. And just as importantly, I didn't see I was going to crawl my way out of the debt after I got in there, <laughs> yeah. which was a huge part of life, right? A couple hundred thousand of potential debt looming Easily. over you, right? Easily. And, so, and a long period of time. Yeah, know, yeah. To get to be a doctor five, ten years, even. Easily do specialty. And if you want right. to get a surgery, you got a couple years of that on. So it's just like. I just saw this path that I didn't really feel fully committed to go down. And at that point, I knew I needed to, just like anything else, you got to pivot. If you're not ready, change. So um, I had three undergraduate science degrees, which basically have zero value in the world for the most part. You can, especially at the undergrad level, you know, you can't really go get a well-paying job or anything like that. So I just decided to take time to myself. And um, on the weekends while I was in college, I was working as a guide teaching rock climbing and whitewater rafting and things like that to kind of stay out of the bars and focus on my studies. So I just right. decided to flip that around and focus on my life. So I moved into a tent into the woods and I, I lived into the woods and were guiding, you know, up to 300 days a year and then going on personal expeditions and climbing mountains and exploring jungles and, and really just like um, chasing a more, more selfish uh, life that was really focused on the outdoors, and it was exactly what I needed at, at that time in my life. How old were you at this point? Uh, you were like a early fourth 20s. year? Uh, yeah, just after my fifth year, so early early twenties, uh, early twenties there. You should have moved into the woods in Hawaii, man. You're in, <laughs> oh, I should have. Ohio is brutal. Have. Oh yeah, but it was like, um, and so at that time I was guiding, I was traveling, and and you know I didn't really have necessarily direction. It was just a free time in life that you could go anywhere. And kept cost low. It was awesome. <laughs> I was making great income. I had next to no expenses, and I think this was probably kind of my insert into the business world because in these areas that I would go and visit and guide that I would frequent year after year and year, 
most of them were depressed areas with beautiful wilderness. So I could buy houses really cheaply, especially back then when you had no, we had stated income and nobody really cared about, this was pre-crisis, right? So fantastic. Pretty time. easy to get, <laughs> yeah. um, get credit for a home. At that yeah. Point. So I'd buy a house and then rent it out and still live in the woods and um, start paying down mortgages. And that allowed me to leverage that to multiple houses in different places and, um, and all just like from the seat of my pants. Really? So you got started in real estate. I got started in real estate. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, and I didn't, like I said, I didn't really know what I was doing. It just was like, you know, I want to do that, so I'm just going to do that. And it, it was just that time in life that you have those freedoms where you can do that. Yeah, know? what did you have to lose? Go, <laughs> go back. Uh, yeah, live in the woods. You already live out there. Yeah, the way that I thought about it is if somebody moves out of the house, well, then I get to live in a house instead of a tent. Right, which is fantastic. It was a you nice have only up. upside. Yeah, so it was a really great time in life, and um, and uh, you know this is kind of this is going to be a, somewhat of a complicated weave here. And so, you know, I was guiding, and it was a great life. I really enjoyed it. It was also somewhat lonely because I was traveling a lot and city to city and all over. Couldn't keep a relationship down or anything like that. Traveling for the guiding. Yeah, for guiding. Uh, yeah, so um, couldn't really. Couldn't really keep relationships. I was losing equipment in every city or country that I was in. And and I decided, okay, well, maybe I should try to use these degrees. Let's take a sabbatical from guiding. I know I can do this. I know I can make money off of it. Let's take a sabbatical and see where it goes, right? Um, so at that time, I was uh, dating somebody that uh, wanted to eventually move to Hawaii. And um, so I looked around. I found the only job that I could find at that time was at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. And with my degrees were science, so I uh, jumped in on a sea turtle program. I had zero desire to come to Hawaii because I was thought, you know, my misconceptions of it, tiki this and bad deals and crappy Mai Tais and, and all these things that, that people can get trapped into Hawaii. Right. So I never saw Wahoo. I landed straight in Hilo, went straight to the park. And when I got there, I'm like, this is outstanding you know it's so beautiful it is just absolutely everything different of of what I thought it to be and you know and I quickly quickly fell in love with Hawaii Um, that was a federally funded program so after 9-11 and as that time was changing some of those federal funds started stripping away right last guy in is usually the first guy out Um, so that was the story and so then at that point I had a taste of Hawaii but I had to move so Got back in, went back to guiding for a few more years, and then eventually um, moved out here um, permanently and moved out to Oahu. So it was the first time I saw Oahu. You decided to move here without even ever being here. Yeah. I mean, it was the time of your life. You just do whatever you want, right? Are you still in your 20s at this point? Yeah, totally. Okay. So it, made, it all it all's good. And yeah, you have no family, no kids, you know, there's no overhead, really. Yeah, so why not? So I landed, and um, so the skill sets I had in my pocket at that time were uh, science degrees, and I could guide. And I liked kayaking, whitewater kayaking specifically. So I drove around looking for jobs. Um, that very first day off the plane, I was able to get a job at a small mom and pop's kayak company. And first day, first day off the plane, it's about twelve hours. Had you later. looked them up before? Or did you just like? I knew nothing about it. <laughs> right. This was like before smartphones and That's and before like easy searching and thing like that. And and uh, I think I think I actually saw it in maybe 101 magazine or something like that. Like. Oh, there's a lot of water sports over in the Kailua side. So I went to Kailua side, and um, it wasn't the water sports that I was expecting. Go to the taxi and be like, dear sir. Yeah. 
Take me to the windward side. Take you have probably didn't even know sports. windward side, right? I didn't know anything. I yeah. was just uh, the Holly off the plane. <laughs> and um, and then at that point, so I started with that company, and and um, and eventually I um, eventually bought uh, into that company, and eventually took that company over, and and that was kind of my intro into the actual like formal business world in Hawaii. Gotcha. So it's kind of um, no distinct pattern until you look back and see how those dots are connected. Yeah. I mean, just in that kind of mode of reflection, this isn't in my notes at all, really, but just kind of curiosity, have you, when you do look back and have that hindsight being 2020 and realize the kind of crazy journey you've been on, do you, do you, have you seen or noticed patterns that have emerged that have kind of affected decisions you make today? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I've ever really looked back that hard and really thought about it, but I mean, I think I always follow my heart and my passion. Hmm. And those things, I think when you're, I think when you do that, you find, if you're optimistic, you can try to find ways to find opportunity. And, and, and really, I think, you know, a mix of that is just dumb luck. I stumbled into a, an, an insane amount of opportunity that I just recognized and, and then found ways to, you know, start shaping my life around that opportunity. Um, yeah, that's fascinating because I hear that, I hear that kind of motif a lot about falling into it. You were lucky, right? But yeah. you had a you had a skill based preparation. You'd had some business sense before. You kind of you could see, you know, you could see it. You knew it when you saw it, I guess is what I'm trying yeah. to say, right? Sure. To some extent. You saw, okay, I know this much and I'll figure the rest out. Yeah. It's like, well this makes sense today. I'm just gonna do this. Right. And that's what I would do. Because you'd been a landlord, you'd had tenants, and then you go to this kayaking company or whatnot and you eventually excel up to being an owner and taking it over. So yeah. then you have employees. So is that your first time having employees and dealing with like insurance yeah. and taxes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that was the first time that like, I mean, it's one thing to own a house and rent it out. You're really not dealing with transactions and customer overflow and things of that nature. So that was my first real dig into business. And um, and so I didn't really, I didn't know what I didn't know until I was in into business. And, um, you know, over the years, um, you know, Hawaii was really good to that business and it continued to grow and we were able to capitalize on the east and westbound markets and really start to grow it um, more than just a mom and pop shop, but a, a dominant player in the local water sports market. What do you mean by east and westbound markets? So tourism in Hawaii is based on east or westbound, so the, the direction of travel that they come from. So a westbound um, tourist would be somebody from the mainland, eastbound would be somebody from Asia. So it's kind of delineated in those ways and the ways that they come. So you approach, those are two different business styles. Um, your contracts with the agents are done in different ways. So they're almost delineated into two subsections to make sure that you've honored them right. And it took us a while to get into the eastbound. It took us almost two years of dedication before the agents were willing to trust us to get into that and hire translators. And yeah, so, you know, we were operating in uh, you know, four or five different languages, Predominantly English and Japanese, obviously, but always some stuff on the side. And and um, and, the, and the business, it really did well. It took off. Um, and at that point, I started to have you know a ton of employees and a ton of things. And I had no formal education in business, and I was really just you know shooting from the hip. So at that time, I decided the best thing I can do because I'm in it for the long haul. Right? The best the best thing that I can do is go get an education. Um, so sometimes you get the education first and go into the job. This time I had the I had the company and I was going to get the education second. And at that point I I did. So I applied to the UH executive program, which was the MBA program, which is fantastic because you can work around your life 
you know, it's um, roughly six days a month plus a ton of side work. So yeah, it's like cohort based too, right? It's so totally you, cohort. -based. You go with a group, three to four others, right? That are either VPs at Bank of Hawaii or something, or totally guys like you, right? Yeah, there was. It started off with uh, forty-four of us in our cohort, and it whittled down to I think it was thirty-nine or forty by the time the graduation came through. And the majority of the people were, you know, vice presidents of banks, or there was very few entrepreneurs that were in there. I was I was one of the few. Um, hmm. And in that, so I guess a number of things happened during that program. You know, one, I started to realize that just by dumb luck, I didn't make any necessarily bad business decisions that could have negatively impacted what I had done. So I, I didn't really necessarily learn a ton because it wasn't geared towards entrepreneurialism, but I gained a lot of confidence in the decisions that I did make. So that was number one. Number two, I ended up meeting uh, my my wife and my business partner in that program also. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, I, I lovingly joke about the UH EMBA uh, program as the most expensive dating program <laughs> in Hawaii, but I, I got two out of it. I got a, I got a wife and a business, uh, you know, two different people, a uh, wife and a business partner. Right, right. So that was kind of it. And, uh, you know, because that's interesting. I actually had in my notes, I was curious uh, why you decided to do the executive MBA program. Yeah. And in, in retrospect, you're like, you gained a lot, but maybe not exactly what you went into it for thinking, this is why I'm getting my MBA in terms of the business sense or the entrepreneurial advice. Right. Necessarily. So. And it wasn't because it wasn't taught. Right, it was all in there, but um, I guess I was I was really looking for an entrepreneurial based thing of like, okay, how do we solve these problems? And that and the MBAs are great programs, but they're really designed to look at business in a more holistic approach, not on a on a granular approach. Right, they're not going to tell you how to set your schedule for the guy kayak guides next week. Right, or <laughs> how, how do you start a brewery? Like these things don't happen, and uh, and you know, but. It, I did learn a ton, and like I said, I gained a lot of confidence out of it, confidence in myself that I probably needed more than anything else, and then it just allowed me to just to look and expand into different options. Yeah. Cool. So I want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, let's, let's pause. You know, well, cheers again. Okay. Cheers. This amazing Moku Imperial IPA, not the 808 IPA. Not the 8. Not the 808. It's quite delicious. Thank you. It is at Whole Foods. Yeah, we are we are statewide. Statewide, um, mostly in these large twenty-two ounce bottles. Um, we have three major SKUs. Our our business model is mostly about distribution. We don't have a brew pub. We have a small like wine-like tasting room. People can come and see where we produce it, but we're more of a factory style. We crank out bottles, and our focus is distribution. Yep. Huh. So. so that's kind of we'll, we'll dovetail into that a little bit about the the story of the brewery, how so you kind of came up with. Hey, this is a great business. Oh yeah, and why you are passionate? I mean, it's kind of it's beer. So yeah, it's beer. It's easy to love. <laughs> you went to all, the Ohio State University, so I, I'd imagine you're quite the beer aficionado. And, and you have to use the word "the" in the Ohio State. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's capitalized. <laughs> the Ohio State University is the official name of the university. I didn't tell you that my my sister's uh, my brother-in-law. So or not sorry, my wife's brother. Goodness. Okay. So the beer is eight <laughs> percent. Is uh, a professor at UM, Big oh. Blue. Yeah, how does he feel about losing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not good, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm he sure. actually, he probably, this is going to be on record, he probably could care less more, mostly. Yeah. Um, his wife's a Notre Dame fan, so there's, there's definitely a divided household that way. And uh, my wife and I are, are purely agnostic and just want to see a good game. Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Regard regardless... Lonnie Kai Brewing, how did that come about, your, your idea for launching that? For the craft beer? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so, you know, I guess going back into kind of back going into the MBA program again, um, as one of the things, you know, you have to do capstone projects and different projects. So one of the projects that came up with my particular group was, um, you know, we had, you had to do a project and it could be a business plan competition, it could be whatever, right? And whatever satisfied the, the, the deal. And I was like, well, I can write a business plan. So how about I just kind of quick spearhead this little project and you guys kind of focus on that and we learned how to like divide the work up, you know, all was fully fine. So um, prior to that, um, when I first came to Hawaii, I started um, home brewing. So just at home on your stove, right? Um, a yeah, a, different, bu- a different business partner of mine knew how to make beer and at that point I knew how to make surfboards or fix surfboards. So we would go surf and break boards and make beer and they took about the same amount of time and <laughs> kept repeating. And then as a home brewer, you get all this confidence because you give people beer and they say they loved it. Well, of course they love it. You just gave them a free beer, right? So, so the false sense of confidence. It or, is. Yeah. Um, so I always loved it. I love the process. I love the science behind it because there's a ton of technical science. Yeah, it's kind of right up your alley in terms of your interest in the medical field and your biology background. It and business. I mean, it's the, all the raw materials. Sure. Very, it's chemistry at the end of the day to an extent, right? It is, yep, and business, and it mixed everything. But um, So I decided to, to come up with an ecologically sustainable brewing concept, and that was the core of that project, right? So could you build a brewery using solar power? Uh, windmills, um, donate the grain, um, and really live like a minimal impact in a community-based brewery, right? So as one of my group members, you know, um, is, a, is a CFO, so I went over to him and took the numbers to him, and I was like, would you mind quick scrubbing through these numbers? And, and you know, sent him the PDF, or sent him the Excel, and he looked at it, and he's like, yeah, sure, I'm in. And I was like, okay, great. And he's like, no, I want in on the business. Oh, really? Like, I want in. And so at that point, I was like, holy crap. This is legit, right? And uh, so I really started developing that plan. I pitched it at the business, UH business plan competition. Um, it did not advance to the final round, but you know, people didn't really understand it. This was kind of prior before Hawaii's craft beer boom, which we're kind of in the upswing of right now. Wh- what year was that? That was 2010. Oh, so this was six years ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. So this was just prior to, it's only been maybe the last year and a half, two years that the craft beer boom in Hawaii has, has started to uptick. Um, so, you know, we finished, we graduated, and, and everything went good. And at that time, you know, I spent time away from my old company, and, and um, due to the liability and all the other issues that were kind of tied into that, I decided it's probably a good time for me to leave it. It didn't necessarily need me anymore because I had spent time away from it while I was brewing. Business was healthy. You know, no, there was no downside issues that we had. We didn't have any, you know, um, legislative issues or permitting issues or anything coming in at the time. So it was a good time to exit. So I exited. And then um, then at that point, um, I was really interested in renewable energy. So I spent some time in renewable energy, which kind of furthered my thoughts about um, sustainable brewing. Yeah, this ecologically sustainable brewery concept, right? And so um, during kind of the um, energy boom in Hawaii, I had a nice little run there. And so I kind of just stockpiled everything. And my wife and I continued to live very meagerly and... We don't drive nice cars, you know. We just we just live a sim- kind of a simple life, right? We like the beach, and, and we don't spend tons of money. So, at that point, I had um, capital and from selling and successful exits from the past, and um, I brought in, you know, my partner that I had met in the MBA school, and then uh, the guy that I learned to homebrew with, and then another friend. So the four of us together just said, "Let's do it." And then next thing you know, 
we've got a craft brewery, and and our angle we took was why doesn't anybody use local ingredients in beer and every single beer, right? Why not use a flower or a fruit or all the stuff that is so awesome to Hawaii? And so we, we went down that path and committed our business to it. And very quickly we realized it's because these are really obscure ingredients. So they really? have to go through a, um, um, like this picake flower that we're drinking now, it has to go through a process to prove that it's an edible food. And then it has to go through another process to prove that after it converts over into alcohol, that that couldn't possibly like poison people and things like that. This is like an FDA approved kind of deal? FDA approves the food and then TTB, which is Tax Tobacco Trade Bureau, um, they're the ones that kind of deal with the alcohol. It's kind of a new version of the ATF. And so all this stuff is very tightly regulated. So um, it was really the reason why is people don't really get into it a lot is because the runway to be able to launch a beer using an obscure local flower um, is longer. People don't realize like you're not just selling like – I don't know. When people see organic, you know, this this whole wave, which it also sure. includes a craft brewery and yeah. vision to have a local, it comes at a, a business cost, uh, a very real, like, you went some serious effort to, to have what I'm drinking now. Yeah. This pakake uh, uh, component to the beer. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, you... And I think just like um, kind of like the the awesome food market that we have here locally, you know, all the local Asian fusion chefs from like, you know, Mavro and Roy and Alan Wong, the people that really infuse those local ingredients too. Um, the craft beer market, at least in Hawaii now, is growing and we're seeing more and more of that. Um, you know, we weren't the first people to use a local ingredient. Some other people used coconut and other flavors. Um, and we're seeing it more and more. And, and mm. our differentiator is we just didn't want to go make a standard beer. We wanted to make one that's like distinctly island inspired and so that's the i love that phrase thank you distinctly island inspired awesome that is really good so that's the company two uh two quick things i want to just uh ask you about before we move on to kind of our next topic but you know you mentioned one you exited so i'm curious how and then two you were away from the business so you must have developed managers and had trust Mm -hmm. So can you kind of talk about those two points, maybe the manager's piece first, because that obviously got you to a point that you were able to uh, have a business that you removed yourself and it still operated, so that it wasn't yeah. all dependent on you. Um, it, it wasn't. I didn't, you know, I wasn't like just gone, never to right, be seen right. again, but I just wasn't able to commit the amount of time plus schooling. So, I, you know, I'm a believer now, and I believe I always have been. I don't know when I recognized it necessarily, but hire good people, train them well. Pay him as fair as he can and and really start to empower, give them responsibility, but just as much as giving them responsibility as you need to give them authority. And those two things need to come together. You should never give one without the other. And so I you know, it was really good to be able to hire people that I trusted and that, that it worked well with everybody and that really could take it and, and do a great job. And and um, you know, I, I think in every business I've been a part of the ones that have had the most success are the ones that have the, the best people that are in there that you do empower with those two things and that you give them the ability to perform and they do. And um, so I think picking good talent is very, very important. Um, on the exit side, um, I didn't know anything about exits, right? Because I never really had one. You know, like real estate company, you sell houses and you're done, right? Like there's... That's it. That's yeah. it. So you're out, right? So that like whether you call it an exit or a sale of an asset, I don't, you can call it whatever you want. But actually selling a business was a uh, much more complicated and difficult because it deals with, you know, how is your operating agreement work with Hawaii LLC? How do, you, how do you actually value what a business is? You know, 
is. Right, right. You know, you can go by, you know, um, net present value times the two to seven that everybody uses, or you can go by, you know, there's a million different ways, but the end result is, is what is a willing buyer going to pay a willing seller? It's like a baseball card. That's really the end result of what it is, right? It's like buying something on Craigslist. So there's the negotiating then and there, and, um, and so the, I, I sold it to a, uh, a partner that I had had and sold. So it just, it took a while to kind of go through that, to go through that process. And um, I think I probably learned just as much through the, the start of working my way through up from the bottom, through business ownership, through exit, as I did as an entrepreneur specifically, as I did in anything else I've done in my life. Um, so that life lesson to me was extraordinarily valuable, which gave me confidence to go in and, and to jump on any vine that I see swinging out there now, where I'm not as fearful to go into something that I don't know if it's going to work. I'm not fearful of the failure because I think failure is part of an entrepreneurialism. Right, because you yeah. built this value. You put your heart and soul into it for you know, a number of years. Right. Um, so there's a franchise value there and how do you value that goodwill above, above and beyond the cash flow, right? Yeah. You know, and then you were able to find a willing buyer yep. through a, a good relationship, someone that, because uh, you, you normally would think that's more or less an illiquid asset and it's hard to, what is it value, right? There's a half a dozen different ways. You mentioned several of them yeah. that you could identify. So that's a, a really fascinating, uh, maybe a secondary podcast. We can have follow up to that whole <laughs> sure. story, you know, like how do you do a seller's note? Do you like, was it a, a buyout? Did he have to get financing? I'm sure there's all all components there. Some sure. some other time we can maybe talk about that. Yeah, or, sure. Uh, that's that's definitely another uh, 22 ounce uh, uh, IPA. Amen. Conversation, <laughs> um, but you know, for kind of moving into this next phase of our our discussion, uh, let's kind of take a little bit of a deep dive into what I'm going to call living the life of an entrepreneur. And I toyed with calling it living la vida loca, but I thought better of it. And um, really, um, I, know I just kind of want to start off and say, I, I really admire you, Steve, for, you know, you live like, you've lived life like a badass. You've done, you lived in the woods in a tent. You've taken life by the horns and you've been on the offense, I think, your entire life. Since you came to that realization, which I admire at that age in high school, or excuse me, college, to identify this career track I'm on isn't what I want. So you had that self-awareness and the knowledge around you to make a very strong pivot and that you kind of place yourself in a situation where you knew you could still provide for yourself and learn and go from that. And I think it's treated you very well. So I really admire that kind of spirit of embodying, I love being outdoors. I'm going to live my life like this. Yeah. And how can I find ways and businesses that I can incorporate into my lifestyle that will make that? Sure. Happen. So just to kind of kick off that piece, you know, from adventure outdoorsman to angel investor to business operator, can you kind of talk about choosing these passions that align with your business? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a ton of different entrepreneurs, right? And I think a lot of people look at the lifestyle as, as somebody that is is really just chasing after a ton of money. And, and you can. And I, I truly believe that anybody in the world that works hard enough can go make, become a gajillionaire. And make a ton of money. But are you willing to make those sacrifices to become that gajillionaire, right? For me, I guess I would classify myself more as like a lifestyle entrepreneur. I, I want to live a good life. Um, I want to have enough money mainly not because I want to go buy a Porsche or live in something fancy, but just because if like some medical problem comes up with a family member, then I don't really have to stress out about that stuff. So for me, it's not about living a big and, and a huge life. It's really just about, you know... Um, 
finding ways that I can help my immediate friends and family and that I can live a more comfortable life and a place in a way that I want to live. You know, life is way too short. So why not enjoy every moment of it? But I can understand and I can appreciate that some people want to go make a gajillion dollars and, and they chase that path and I, and I respect that that's the way that they want to go. And I can, I can respect that some people don't want the stress of it, want to work as a vice president of the bank, get the mortgage, you know. Uh, Put the kids through Puno. Yeah, and, and ride that. I respect that. I think that's awesome too, you know. And so I, I, I believe in more of a, a lifestyle play. I don't want to be in an office from 9 to 5. I think I would shoot myself. I don't think I could deal with it. Um, I would like to be able to get outside and go surf and go play and spend time with friends whenever I can because to me there's a – there's a value and a currency to the value of your life. And so I add my life value on top of like any value that I can get off of business. And that's how I value what I'm doing in my particular life. So, you know, like my wife and I talk all the time, like, would we ever move from Hawaii? And, and we talk, would our comprehensive opportunity of lifestyle plus business opportunity trump what we have in Hawaii? And, um, and it's hard to find somewhere that could ever do that for us. Um, so... I believe in the lifestyle entrepreneur, and that's I think I, I kind of sit that route. Um, as it pertains to like angel investing and things like that, uh, a lot of that is just you know it's it's somewhat gambling. You've got to you've got to be confident in what's out there. I look at things that I don't know as much about, but I believe in the technology, and more importantly, I believe in the entrepreneur that's behind it. So I like tech or things that are a little bit off off to the charts of of what it is, um, but. Every time I've made an investment, I've made an investment because that entrepreneur is all in. They're not working it as a part-time job. They're dedicated to that craft and that if that ship goes down, it's going to go down with them because those people are the ones that are less likely to fail. They're trapped into the corner. That, those are, that's the man and woman that I understand right there. They have to succeed. So that's what I look for. Cool. So let's talk about some of the qualities of an entrepreneur and, and we have um... – and maybe we can share a version of it uh, or point to somewhere online where you might have this. Uh, I have in front of me a love letter to an entrepreneur by <laughs> Steve Homschild. Um, and we won't kind of read it in detail, but if I can kind of summarize yeah. uh, my, my kind of takeaways from, from this. And I know we were talking beforehand and you were saying, you know, this is more or less something you wrote to yourself as an inspiration. You know, entrepreneurship and can be a lonely road. And so coming through why you're doing this, you know, you talk about this, um, you know, kind of life investment or life value and being an entrepreneur uh, for, you know, the passion you do it for as well as your family. And it's just this, uh, uh, this comfort or, mm -hmm. or competitiveness, I think, is also in here as well. And we yeah. haven't necessarily talked about that. It's yep. like, you know, we were talking about Ohio State and Michigan. Sure. And there's definitely a, you know, let's tee up and let's see who's best. And we're going to yeah. punch you in the mouth and you might punch back, <laughs> but we're going to win, right? Sure. Um, so kind of think about maybe what you were thinking when you wrote this letter and, you know, what kind of drove you to do that? Yeah, I, I think a lot of what drove me to do it is um, I think when you when you build a company or you run a company or you're just an entrepreneur in general, you spend a lot of time really in a lonely place that other people don't understand. There may be a lot of people that work with you and and um, you know look at the decisions you make and why you make them, but they don't. I don't know. I guess the best answer is it's kind of lonely at the top. So you don't have a lot of people you can go console in that understand that your problems are as an entrepreneur because it's kind of a unique uh, twist onto the side. I'm very fortunate I have my wife who's also an entrepreneur that we get to, you know, we have that with each other which is very good. So 
this love letter to an entrepreneur started out um, kind of embarrassing for me is just something that I could refer to. So I think I go through, as an entrepreneur, I go through swings of high levels of being very positive and I can crush it. I'm going to knock the door down, stay out of my way kind of deal. And then you go through valleys where you're like, oh man, why did I do this? Or <laughs> did I seriously just invest in this? Or like, so you go through these things and you have, for me, you have these like, spikes and valleys in in your emotional connection to that business. So I wrote that and I try to write it and write myself into these things so when I have these positive things that I think are very powerful, that when I'm in a negative feeling way or an unopportunistic feeling way that I can refer back to that and say, great advice and take it and go. Um, I had never, you know, it needs, obviously, a lot of the times I cuss at myself, as you've seen in the notes. So I think... Yes, we, yeah, we didn't want this podcast to be, uh, you right. know, ex- expletive-laced, however, um, so, it's still very relevant. Right. So I need, you know, I'd eventually like to hone it down and... and Put the asterisks where needed, right? Yeah. And, and I think it would be something that I think, um, whether or not they would agree exactly with what it is, but I think entrepreneurs would understand what's behind it. And, you know, a lot of it... Like I said, right when I saw your article come out, this was one of the things that I was like, wait, I have something similar. But, you know, yours made me think more about about this and then how, how it is to myself. So that's that was the genesis of this particular document. Gotcha. And, yeah. and Steve Stiebel, I just wrote an article on 69 Life and Startup Tips for Entrepreneurs. Uh, you can we'll, we'll include that in the show notes as well as uh, hopefully uh, some of the info on the, the link to the love letter. So you can check that out. Make sure you read his 69 tips. They're fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. I'll, I'll, here's five bucks. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I got to pay you even more for the beer and the beer that you're providing. Oh, so uh, I definitely owe you. Um, can you share any failure stories along the way, whether it's an investment that you regretted or whether it's some sort of business endeavor where you're like, I learned a lot from this. Yes, I failed. Like what happened and what did you, what did you learn, whether life or, or business-wise? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, countless, countless ones, you know, from like trying to take off on a wave. We only got an hour. Yeah. (laughs) From trying to take off on a wave that's too big, but you don't know your limits until you cross them and then you just get pounded, but you survive. There's stories of that, of being in the woods. You know, I've had, um, I've had partners in business in the past that, that, um, I found to be less ethical than I truly believed them to be. And I misjudged the character of the partner um, our agreements at that time and different business ventures um, weren't structured in a way that it was a fair. It was more, it was, you know, a lot of those agreements in my in my early life and my early business were structured as more of like a some sort of prenup or divorce document, where it really wasn't anything else besides a, a method, something to fight over. Um, so, a lot a lot of those failures that I learned along those ways, I've been able to take and learn from it. So, all my documents that I have with my existing partners now are like. What is the understanding of how we're in business together? You know, a partner, any business that I'm part of, a partner wants out, they can get out at any time. There is a way that we've determined on like ways that we can value the business that we kind of roughly shape out. And the end result of that is that's taken away all bickering and all threats. So we're all now very aligned with what the future of the company is going to do. And it, it works with small, closely held companies. And, it, it, you, know, it's some, you know, obviously a closely held company, you can't force anybody to purchase your stock from you if you're issuing stock. Or you can't force a sellout. You can't force somebody to buy yours from you, right? So we just said, why don't we just make ways that everybody can get out and um, find ways to do it, payment structure, done. Did you, uh, so did you kind of 
uh, look at uh, legal counsel to help put together those documents, or was it more just the the the, con the structure of these are the main topics I want to cover based on lessons learned? Um, both. Um, I, I I've spent more on lawyers in the last five years than than I'm really happy to talk about. Right? <laughs> and, Let, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I've learned from that too is like. Um, I don't want to be in business with people that have to start with a legal document. Right. Right. I want it to be fair to everybody, and and I want to go into the intention of fairness, and ethics, and ways that people can get out. So you know, we all, whenever I get into a new business or a new startup or whatever it is, um, the documents of our understanding of how we're going to be in business together are really important to me. So we spend a lot of time kind of picking through it, making sure everybody understands everything, not just some sort of document that we're going to fight over later, but something that's really going to drive the value of our partnership to make us a stronger company. Um, so there is, obviously, there's legalese and all that stuff, but we dumb it down to make it that, like, it's not really questionable and it's a really cut and dry way to do it. And, and for me, I think that was, you know, that was my lowest low that I learned in kind of bad partnerships that... I, I also vowed I would never, ever be that partner to anybody else. And I'm going to find ways that if they ever want to get into business with me, it's fair. And that there's a way that they can get out. Because, I mean, whether there may be a chance that they don't want to get out, but there may be they need to, um, maybe their mom needs a hip surgery and they need to come up with capital. Maybe they want to invest in something else and they want out. So, you know, why shouldn't you honor your partner that wants to do that and find ways to do that? Mm. So that was kind of that. So... I uh, really appreciate that. I think that's a great lesson um, for uh, for entrepreneurs, and thank you for sharing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the successes and the failures, because like even the love letter, you kind of talk about, you know, the highs and lows of, of what you go through. Uh, I kind of want to talk a little bit actually about uh, maybe your uh, experience in Hawaii's startup scene, and, you know, kind of when you've, you've been here, uh, 2010, six, eight years, seven, eight? Um, permanently, end of 2003, permanently. Okay, so you've been here 13 years. Mm -hmm. um, just, yeah, I'm actually saying I came here in August 2003 and went to college, so we've been here about the same amount of time. Perfect, yeah. And um, when did you kind of start actually looking at making, uh, you know, with the Hawaii Angels or uh, looking at different startups as, uh, and startups can be, you know, defined loosely, you know, whether that's a small, uh, smaller business that, that you see, you know, again, your kind of criteria, believing the entrepreneur and doubling down on them. Yeah. Um, you know, first question, I guess, is how have you seen it change since the time he's been here and, and what kind of excites you? Uh, are you interested about uh, some of the, the activity going on in Hawaii? In Hawaii? I've seen it change for the better a hundredfold. Really? Um, I, I, you know, it's a mix between the people that are out there Places like Accelerate UH, right? Uh, Blue Startups, um, you know, the Energy Accelerator, the Fashion Accelerator. None of these things were there before. And I think these things are very valuable guidance tools to, you know, a new entrepreneur that maybe's never been one before, or somebody that is one that just either needs the connection or the expertise, or somebody just to like level them down on the value of their business and their plan. And is it scalable and is it marketable? So, I mean, prior to that, I don't ever remember, you know, in the last three or four years, I don't think it's ever been better than what it is right now, mainly because I feel that the community of entrepreneurs is, is strong and we're all and together and willing to mentor and coach and advise and jump in and actually write checks. And maybe it's just because that's only been as long as that I've been part of it, right? But on the other hand, I really, I, I've never seen so much activity around entrepreneurs for like articles and uh, people that are out there 
and um, you know programs like PACE at the University of Hawaii. Um, so I, I just see like this exponential tick up, and I think it's only going to continue to get better. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what's your most recent investment that's public that you can share? If if if, if not, that's fine. And and why did you invest? Um, so I guess my most recent public investment would have been in a um, in a captive insurance company out of Micronesia, which would probably be the one. Uh, I chose to invest because um, I know the entrepreneur is a rock star. Um, very rarely has the guy not been a giant success, so I, I'm a huge fan of the entrepreneur. Uh, the business model just makes sense, and it was just something that was kind of a home run. Um, prior to that, I... And these, and I guess when I'm talking about these are angel investments where I'm just dumping money, no experience, no expertise, no sweat equity, anything like that. Right. Prior to that, I was in a company, or I'm still a part of a company that did um, somewhat of a drop-down shopping app that helps find best pricing and then redirects over. And then that company pivoted to um, other very cool technology where it kind of shops for you before you know you even want something. It's very cool. And, Emerging wow. it's technology. Like AI for shopping. It's kind of like AI for <laughs> shopping, and uh, I'm not a very big online shopper, but um, you're not. You know, I mean, you're so stylish, Steve. Oh yeah, you like the jeans <laughs> my wife bought for me, and uh, she took all my. The only thing she lets me buy is skateboards. Everything else I have to get rid of. <laughs> which we haven't mentioned your one wheel, amazing skateboard, which yes. I think we're going to have to include a link at least or a photo sure. uh, of Steve bombing hills in Lanikai <laughs> <laughs> on this thing. What did you say it gets up to? Uh, about between 12 and 15 miles an hour, depending on your weight and, and yada yada. Steve's probably gone in, taken the regulator off, doubled the power, and he's going like 30 miles an hour down Oneava or something in Kailua. That's right. Uh, Tim, the tool man, Taylor. I just <laughs> yeah. jacked up the engine. Totally. Uh, all right. Well, if it's all right with you, let's uh, kind of go into a rapid fire Q&A round. Yeah, sure. Totally. Totally. Favorite thing about Hawaii? Um, meeting my wife. Favorite Hawaiian beach? Anikai. What is your favorite startup blog or podcast, if you have one? Yours. <laughs> <laughs> do you read any any blogs? Are you kind of uh, are you a blog reader, or do you follow any uh, stuff online, or um, kind of more like? I, I follow as much as I can, but it's not. I'm not dedicated from one to the other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, best book you've read recently, or book you've recommended or given the most. Um, I just read one called Dethroning the King, which is about the um, Anheuser-Busch uh, hostile takeover. Oh, yeah. That was at InBev, right? It was InBev, right. And it, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to comment on whether I care about that beer or not, but it was an amazing story about business, and, um, and that one I highly recommend. And then on a personal, I read either books. I'm, I'm very much like a, a, a nonfiction-based reader. And another one uh, is about the Emerald Mile, which was one of the fastest descents of the um, Grand Canyon. So mo more of an adventure-based story. So those have been the two books I've read lately. What was it called again? The Emerald Mile. Emerald Mile. I'm going to have to look that up. A, uh, let's see. A startup founder or investor you admire and why? Uh, in Hawaii. Wherever. Or in Hawaii. I mean, I guess a dumb answer is Elon Musk because he's willing to take... Dang it, I was going to say, don't say Elon Musk. No, I'm kidding. To... I just read his book and Tarek, I think, a previous guest said he's that will, as well. He's just willing to take those... Yeah, how can you not choose him? Yeah, he's really hard not to. He's yeah. right up your alley, man. That guy has balls to the wall, like... Well, when I'm landing spaceships on one wheels <laughs> by drones... I... Maybe there's levels. Maybe, uh, but... maybe. 
Elon Musk. That's a good choice. Absolutely. Do you watch Netflix at all? Sometimes. I would say, what is the last Netflix show you binge watched? Dexter. It's my dark side. <laughs> You're not secretly a serial killer, are you? No, no. I would okay. suck at it. <laughs> uh, what is something in your career that you can say you're really proud of? Um, I, I think I hold ethics through all my partnerships, no matter um, where we are in the business, that I care about my partners. Do you have anybody that you know, you've kind of looked up to or inspired you in your career, whether it's a family member or... You know, even Elon Musk, I guess. Uh, I'm inspired by anybody that, that lives an honest life and chases their dreams. And it doesn't matter necessarily that it's a job or a person or anything. But I'm inspired by people that just do what they want to do and find a way to do it. And those are the people that I chase after. Do you have any final tips of advice for entrepreneurs or investors? Anybody listening? <laughs> uh, for an entrepreneur... Never get up, give up. Um, you're going to hear no more times in your life. It's like dating. You're going to hear no more times than you're going to hear yes. And every no should be one no closer to that yes. And it sounds anecdotal, but it's true. Um, never give up. If you believe it's going to happen and you believe it has market value, then you should never quit no matter what the naysayers say. Awesome. Great advice, Steve. Great beer. Thank you. Thank you for uh, coming on the show today. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. High five. All right. <laughs> Good times. Right. It was National High Five Day like two days ago. Was it? Yeah. It's national. It's Earth Day today. Earth Day's today. I think it was the 19th. It was National High Five Day. Really? Yo, yo, yo. Fun times today with Steve. You know, I feel like this episode was packed with cool anecdotes and encouraging stories. I just actually re-listened to the whole thing myself. I just love Steve's go-get-em attitude, and you know, I feel like I need to stop recording as soon as possible, go jump in the ocean, uh, go on another adventure soon, get out there, experience and explore life. Uh, you guys make sure and check out the show notes and full audio of today's podcast online at sultanventures.com slash podcast. This is a Sultan Ventures production. We are coming to you from paradise in Honolulu, Hawaii. Please, please, please subscribe on iTunes. I would give you great mahalo for your kakua with that. I'd love to hear from you about what you think. Let me know some of the guests you'd like to see on the show. Shoot me an email, luke at sultanventures.com. The sweet tunes that are caressing and assaulting your ears are courtesy of DJ Drew Farwell, founder at outdoorjunkies.com. Full list of music, tracks, and artists is available on our website. Please check out our next episode with Ray Chunk Fujihara from Box Jelly coming soon to a podcast player near you.